the other day when I was coming home on Friday. We are live. It's uh, Value After Hours. I am Tobias Carlisle, joined as always by my co-host Jake Taylor and very special guest today, Cam Harvey. Cam, uh, you're the you're a professor of finance at Duke and you're the director of research at Research Affiliates. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Absolute pleasure. We've been we've been using your name in vain and your uh, <laughs> and your inversion indicator for a little while. So you wrote a PhD dissertation in 1986 on the yield curve inversion. That's the 10-3 and the implications for recessions. So perhaps uh, we get your, what is the 10-3 inversion? So can I just give you a little bit of background on sure, the whole idea? And it's, it's hilarious now, but uh, in real time, it wasn't. So I'm first year master's student, uh, and I applied for internship in Toronto. Uh, that's where I was uh, in between first year and second year. And I go into this company uh, that was called Falconbridge, the world's largest copper miner in the world at the time. And uh, this is in 1982. And I walk in as an intern. So first year master's student, and into the corporate development area. And they said, well, your job is to design a forecasting model for real GDP. Easy. <laughs> oh yeah, no problem. Lay up. And, yeah, that's exactly my attitude. Like, oh, okay, well, this is normal. This is what I should expect in the world of big business. Uh, and I just shrugged it off, figured, okay, well, um, I got to do this. And the competition at the time uh, were these companies that were, specialists in these giant econometric models. So to have massive data systems, hundreds of equations, and then you'd have to pay them tens of thousands of dollars to get like one number. So I'm thinking I've got nine weeks and there's just no way I can assemble a model like that or the data. Uh, I can't compete against them. So uh, what about using some stuff I learned in the intro finance course, that assets actually have information about the future path of whatever earnings or uh, you know things like that. So um, I started looking at the stock market, but quickly realized that that was just all over the place. Mm -hmm. And the joke at the time was the stock market predicted successfully uh, like nine of the last five recessions. Right. <laughs> um, so a huge uh, <laughs> false positive rate. Uh, but I quickly moved to bonds. And uh, and it, it just seemed like ideal because a bond has got a fixed coupon versus a dividend that you have no idea what it's going to be. A bond has got a, a fixed time to maturity and a stock, again, who knows what the maturity actually is. And then just on the risk angle, if you're looking at treasury uh, bonds and bills, those have very low risk compared to stocks where... Uh, the value of stocks can fluctuate, even if the cash flows are the same. If risk goes up, then the stock is going to go down. So I decided to look at, at bonds and then uh, decided to look at a spread and yields. Uh, and I wanted to do that to take expected inflation out. And there was this early paper that I saw uh, published by... Um, 
by somebody at the Federal Reserve in 1965. So it was way back. And they noticed a kind of cyclical pattern. It was nothing to do with forecasting, but they just noticed a cyclical pattern. And, and I, I said, well, I, I definitely want to look at the yield curve. And I put this model together. It was shocking to me uh, that I could do as well or better than these econometric services. I'm ready to present the senior people at Falconbridge. I go in that day. So my day of presentation, I go in and I'm told that the whole division is laid off and I need to collect my stuff and I'll be shown the door uh, at, at the bottom uh, of the building. So before I could do, before I could present it to them and, and to know what's going to happen in real GDP is so important for copper. Yeah. Right? It's like Dr. Copper. Like you need to know in terms of uh, your exploration budget, opening a mine, closing a mine, all this stuff, very important. I actually delivered something, but I didn't deliver it. So I'm gone. I'm on the street, and uh, I decide, well, this this idea is pretty cool. Maybe I'll just spend the next three or four weeks working on it. Then I went back my second year masters, presented the paper, and they said, uh, "You need to go for a PhD." <laughs> and that's how I ended up huh. at the University of Chicago. Uh, so that that's kind of the story, and the story is. Um, is very solid economic foundations. Uh, and, and just think of the simplest possible uh, scenario that if people get nervous about what's going to happen in the economy, then there's a flight to safety. And often that safety is the 10-year bond. And just, just thinking of that alone. Uh, yeah. So, well, if the 10-year bond, um, a lot of demand for it, price goes up, yield goes down, and this serves to flatten the yield curve or even invert it. So the original model in my dissertation at the University of Chicago in 1986 was, uh, was based upon expectations that uh, financial assets like bonds and stocks, but bonds a lot less noisier, contain information, valuable information, about the future. And it's also the case that in contrast to the, let's say the stock market, uh, the economy is a lot easier to forecast. Uh, and, and the intuition for that is, uh, is pretty uh, clear also, that things are sticky, that uh, you make an investment that takes a while to actually pay off in the economy. It's not like a stock investment. You're buying, uh, you know, equipment or a plant or employees. So, so there is predictability in the business cycle, and you just need to come up with a model uh, for that. And my model has been, uh, I would say, and. I'm trying not to be immodest here, uh, successful. So you knew what you were going to write for your thesis before you even got into grad school? Yeah. And, and this that's is pretty wild. Know, I mean, that's a... so I, I now evaluate these uh, applications. Yeah. And again, I didn't know anything back then. PhD, you know, uh, how long is that going to take? I, I told my <laughs> parents are shaking their head. And uh, they said, well, you know, because pay masters, <laughs> masters was excessive, given that neither <laughs> of them had like undergrad degrees. Um, so what what is a PhD? Like uh, another year? 
Um, I said, I, I, I don't think so, but I don't really know. Um, <laughs> actually, my the first day there, somebody gave me a tour and I asked the person, well, how long you been in the program? Because you look rather ragged um, <laughs> and, and, and a lot older than I expected. He said, well, it's my ninth year. Oh. I said, you graduating this year? Well, I don't know. So, <laughs> and um, his name was Cliff Asnes. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I actually did um, overlap uh, with Cliff. Um, I came back as, uh, as a visiting professor. And it was, it was actually hilarious because uh, I graduated after three years. Given that I came in with my topic, right? That saves a huge amount of time. So yeah. usually you're doing a number of years of coursework, then you start thinking about research. No, uh, the first day uh, I'm working on my my project. So I was uh, looking for a job after my second year. I uh, go to uh, and accept a job after three, and then I get invited back for like a visiting professorship, and. Uh, in in the finance seminar, I would just sit with the students in the student area because I knew them, right? They're my colleagues. Yeah, yeah all and, your friends. And then, but it was really confusing to the faculty because they thought it was still in the program. Oh, he's taking a long time. Um, but I, I did uh, overlap with uh, Cliff. He was a brilliant uh, student and actually had the pleasure of reading um, one of his papers and and commenting. Uh, mm-hmm. on it. And uh, it, it was fun uh, to do at that time. Uh, the There were so many like great students, uh, including Cliff uh, at Chicago. Let me just give some shout outs. And then uh, I've got a few questions for you. Senator Domingo, Dominican Republic, Hawaii, Nashville, Bendigo, Victoria, Austin, Texas, Mississippi, Fort Lauderdale, Sweden, Massachusetts, Dubai. What's up? Santa Monica, Gothenburg, Sweden, <laughs> Dallas, Toronto. Del Boca Vista, Florida, Bermuda, Tallahassee, Greece, Kent, WA. What's up, guys? And Glad everybody could join us. Spin the globe segment. For those guys who've just come in <laughs> late, it's Cam Harvey, the uh, the creator, the inventor, the discoverer of the 10.3 inversion. Cam, a couple of things that you mentioned while you were going through that that I just want to dig into a little bit. Before I went and I think that I saw you appear on a research affiliates uh, seminar. This is a few years ago now. And you gave a, you were discussing the 10.3. And before I saw you present it, I didn't actually realize that actually it was the Meb Faber podcast from a few years ago. I didn't actually realize that it was the 10.3 because it's often quoted in the press as being, they look at the 10.2. Do you know why, how that happened or why the 10.2 became sort of substituted in the sort of collective mind of the 10 Yeah, it's a very strange situation. So my dissertation in 1986 uses, uh, actually, I look at the 10 to three month and also the five to three month and the, the five and the 10 highly correlated. Uh, but it's really important to anchor with a short term um, instrument, like the three month. And I chose the three month because it's liquid and we measure GDP quarterly. So let's do something over a quarter. So, so that indicator uh, since 1986, uh, we've had, so this is the out of sample period. Uh, in the out of sample period, uh, it is four out of four with no false signals. So the way I'm looking at it, 
which makes it eight for eight then now is that is that yeah so think about uh from the late 1960s so that was in my dissertation so Mm -hmm. you can indeed this is like another story um most of the key analysis in my dissertation is over this period um from the mid 60s to 1985 in that period there's four recessions and there's four inversions and it looks like uh, a four out of four perfect in- indicator. But my committee uh, is saying, well, uh, that could be lucky, mm. right? You can get four out of four. Yeah. Um, and it turned out that even though it could be lucky, they they liked the idea, were willing to go forward with it for, um, for a few reasons. Um, and one of the overwhelming reason was the theory was sound. Mm-hmm. So the theory predicts this, then yeah. if we see it in the data, then, well, maybe it's still lucky, but still um, you've got some basis for it, that uh, some good, strong intuition. That was uh, number one reason. Number two reason, they were fascinated that uh, my indicator got the double dip recession in the early 1980s. So we had a recession, then a strong recovery, then another uh, recession. And the these macroeconomic forecasting services, nobody got that. Yeah. Uh, and then the third thing, and people in Chicago especially like this, that uh, the alternative to paying tens of thousands of dollars a year to these econometric services is a very simple model um, that is as good or better, and it costs the price of a Wall Street Journal. <laughs> which at the time was 25 cents, right? So yeah, yeah, that, this is good. I thought um, you were going to say it because it kind of shows the efficiency of the the bond market at, you know, the information yeah. that's contained within there. Yeah, it's it's more the 25 cents will drive the price down to what the efficient price should be. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So it, it's, yeah, it's so that's kind of um, where we were going. So we're a- four for four in the, in the, research four for four cents in post and now recently another another inversion has happened yeah so let's kind of go through that yeah Uh, and that does gonna require some some unpacking so uh and and just i don't want to leave this hanging your previous question well why is it like 10.3 versus uh 10.2 uh so given that uh, that the indicator is four for four out of sample and eight for eight it's in the 1960s. I don't see a particularly good reason to switch the model to something else that doesn't have the same theoretical underpin- underpinning. So if it was the case that out of sample, let's say I got two out of four, Whereas this other indicator got four out of four, um, then, okay, it seems like the model's broken, so let's fix it. But that's not what happened. So the, the Fed in particular started talking about the 10-2, um, and, uh, and, and, and by some metrics, uh, it might fit the data a little better. However, it's given like a false signal in 1998. Right. Mm. So again, it's just not really a good reason. 
uh, to abandon something that's working. Somebody else wanted their name on the the tent yeah, too. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Uh, it, it, and and that should be suspicious uh, of that just uh, in on its own. So uh, what I often say is, well, if we want to get the best possible fit in sample, right? So calibrated to the data, it's not the ten two. It, it it could be uh, the eight year two month minus the sixteen month, <laughs> right? So it's, yeah. Tens of thousands of combinations you could try to get the best possible fit. But we all know that when you do that, that that model will most likely fail out of sample because it's been overfit. Right. So uh, my model is not uh, overfit and, uh, and, and it's done well. So eight out of eight. But the big question is, okay, great. Uh, that's a fabulous historical record. What about today? So on December, at the end of December, uh, we had a full quarter inversion. So my model is about quarters, right? Not months or weeks or days. Mm. So uh, that a 10 year minus three month, uh, the spread was negative. So short rates higher than long rates on average over that quarter. And at that point, I usually um, put a post up uh, saying code red. And and the track record is pretty impressive. So this time around, I did put the post up. And I said, the model's giving code red, but let me explain to you why I believe that my model is giving a false signal. Hmm. Like I said, that got the attention of a number of people. Yeah. So uh, Harvey going against his model, and and there many people could go against my model. Uh, many pundits uh, are against my model already, but it's a little different when then you're you're the uh, whatever yeah. um, disrupt discover OG yeah. whatever. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so let me make my case and then let me talk about the qualifier that I had. And this is a post on LinkedIn, January 4th, uh, 2023. So, so this is the way I kind of approached it. First, uh, this is a very simple model. It is a model with one variable. And uh, it's a lot to ask for a one variable model to have a, a perfect track record forever. And especially given the complexities of our economy. Uh, so, and I also make it clear that I'm not, uh, it's not in my nature uh, just to promote the model because it's mine. I, I totally understand. And my training at Chicago is very helpful for this. You understand the limitations of the model. And indeed, uh, I haven't done research in this area in a long time, in 30 years. Uh, and uh, if I was a, you know, hired by that same firm, which, by the way, didn't make it, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, they were acquired at a significant discount. Um, so if I was doing that job again, I would do it differently. So I would definitely look at the yield curve, and that might be 
50% of what I look at, but there'd be other things that I look at. So let me go through the other things that uh, I was considering and why I decided that on January 4th, that this was likely a false signal. So the first thing I noticed was the strange situation in the employment uh, uh, you know, sector. So, so think about unemployment in general. So unemployment is, is always low before a recession. And it is at best a coincident indicator uh, or a lagging indicator. So, so just to say, oh, we're not going to have a recession because unemployment's so low. Well, it's always low before a recession. Mm-hmm. So, so that's not what I was interested in. What I was interested in was the ratio of job openings to unemployment. And that was very weird. It was almost two. Like right now, I think it's 1.7. Even that is really high. And, and what that does is that it allows for um, some economic slowing. So just to be clear, uh, a flat yield curve or inverted yield curve means the economy will slow. And that slow could actually manifest itself in a recession, because that's kind of like the down, the, the worst scenario is a recession. So the idea here is that you could be slowing, but and some people laid off, but their duration of unemployment is low. And then, all the openings. Yeah, with all the openings. Did you just get another job? And then the media was focusing on all of these tech layoffs. And I'm really like shaking my head, thinking, well, the duration for these people who were fortunate enough uh, to win the competition to get to one of these top firms like Twitter, uh, those people are very valuable elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And and then somebody said to me, oh, well, looking at the data, they aren't placed that quickly. And I said, well, I totally get that. Uh, you take a vacation and, and take a break. And you know, when you get back, you choose where you want to go. So that is so different than if you got laid off by Lehman Brothers. Uh, where are you going to go? Uh, to another bank, to, to Bear Stearns? I, no, that, that you're facing a long period of unemployment and many people suffer greatly uh, in the, the great uh, recession or global financial crisis. So, so, I, so this duration, uh, both the number of openings to the, uh, the number of unemployed, plus just the nature of the layoffs that just didn't really uh, check the boxes. It, it was something very different than, let's say, the global financial crisis. And it looked at other things like um, housing. So if you look at the ratio of, uh, of equity to debt uh, just before the global financial crisis, uh, it, it was... The, the amount of debt was very large compared to equity. And we know that the global financial crisis was in part triggered by what was happening in the housing market. If you look at that today, 
it looks completely different. That uh, the equity is so much larger than the debt that even if housing went significantly down in price, we wouldn't have the same sort of contagion uh, sort of issues. Um, so there are other issues. And uh, one other issue is the idea of self-fulfilling prophecy. And yeah. this is something different than my dissertation. So this is outside of my dissertation. And, and let me tell you the story. Uh, it's kind of a Heisenberg principle issue there. Huh? Exactly. So, But let me go through the intuition of it because it's very, very important uh, to understand. So before the global financial crisis, nobody uh, really took note of my model, even though it had done very well, uh, not just, and this is important also, um, not just in hitting the, the two recessions uh, afterwards, um, but, but not giving false signals. So in 1987, when the stock market crashed, the consensus was a recession in 1988. The strong consensus was a recession in 1988. And my model actually had a number. Um, so I said this, the model says 4.2% real economic growth. And that was a joke. That was such an outlier compared to what people were thinking. And, and we had plus 4% growth in 88. So that, that sort of thing. So you're not counting like a, a recession, correct prediction. It's a non-recession, correct prediction. But nobody nobody really took it seriously. There are pockets here and there. Um, but think of- They're all wealthy and retired now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I should be wealthy and retired. Something more. <laughs> um, so, so think of the uh, the CEO going in front of shareholders in two thousand and nine. They've been hammered by this recession, and they say, "Look, uh, we were blindsided. We had no idea. And if we had known what was going to happen, we wouldn't have pulled the trigger on this major investment that put that has put the firm at risk." Uh, and oh, by the way, it's not just me. Uh, all of my fellow CEOs are in the same shape as our company, and we were all blindsided. So um, let's kind of go forward to today. And after the global financial crisis, people started to realize, oh, well, this indicator is six out of six, no false signals. So, uh, so things, things actually changed. So now, uh, suppose we go into recession in, let's say, late 23 or early 24. And then let's imagine the same CEO um, going before shareholders at the annual general meeting saying, oh, well, you know, if we had known a recession was coming, we would have never pulled the trigger on this bet your firm um, capital investment. You know, the, the, at the general meeting would erupt in laughter. There's no blindsiding, unless you're uh, like, an, like an ostrich. Uh, this is in your face. It's all over the place. We're talking about it today. 
So, so this is no excuse. So you see this, okay, oh, yield curve inverted. It's eight out of eight. Uh, so I'm not going to take the risk. So I'm going to delay that capital investment. I'm going to delay hiring. Uh, indeed, let's do like a 5% uh, layoff proactively. Just so if yeah. we go into recession, um, we won't have to do uh, like the slashing that is so painful for both the firm and uh, the uh, the employees, obviously, that are laid off. So, so all of this, think about what, what happens here. Uh, because the yield curve is flashing code red, uh, these firms are taking positions that actually decrease economic growth. And that's the self-fulfilling prophecy. So the cutting back investment, cutting back on employment and on other things, all of that just drops to the bottom line for GDP. It slows GDP growth. But, and this is crucial, it slows, but it decreases the chance of a hard landing. Does that make sense? That you take these actions, you do the 5% layoff, you defer that project that you need to borrow a lot of money for. We go into, if we go into recession, you're going to survive. Um, and if we don't go into recession, well, we just had some slower growth and we'll pick it up uh, later when we re-trigger uh, some of these projects. So the yield curve inverting itself is causal now uh, mm. in terms of lowering economic growth, but I view it as, as kind of risk management. Yeah, hit the brakes a little bit. There's a curve in the road ahead. Right. So, so let me go to um, another factor. Uh, that I mentioned, and that was the uh, the financial system. And I said that uh, it was relatively strong uh, compared to what happened in the global financial crisis when the large banks were acting as hedge funds. So taking extreme leverage and acting as hedge funds, which had like a Fed put option. And uh, and we've made a lot of changes since then. And my read of the financial system was that it also was not going to cause a contagion if we went into uh, like a mild uh, recession. So I went through all of these factors, there's more of them, but I had a major caveat. And I said, we we can avoid uh, a hard landing recession, but on January 4th, I said the Fed needed to stand down. Mm -hmm. uh, that if the Fed continued to increase rates, then that will cause um, stress, unnecessary stress, in my opinion, and would uh, would lead us to a recession. So uh, the Fed, as you know, has Did chosen not. to decrease the uh, the size of the hikes, but has not stopped. The Fed has not stood down in any way. And in this, 
creates a second channel of causality from the yield curve to the economy. And uh, and and we can kind of go through that channel. Uh, we're kind of living that channel uh, right now. And it's a channel directly through um, the financial system. So so let me let me explain what I mean here. So let's think of uh, just a, like a simple model of a bank. So deposits come in and you pay the depositors the short-term interest rate. And then you take those deposits and you lend them out. So you lend them out to companies and that induces some credit risk, but you're careful in your due diligence, hopefully. Um, and you can also lend to the government, uh, which means just buying government bonds. So, so that's the revenue that you're getting. So the revenue you're getting uh, are from the payments from the loans and the payments, the coupons on the bonds. And the, uh, the cost is like what you're paying the depositors. And this works great almost all the time because almost all the time, short-term rates are lower than long-term rates. So now let's flatten the yield curve and, and potentially invert it. So, and we've got a severe inversion right now where it's like 1.5%. 1.6% yesterday. Yeah, that, that, it's, it is remarkable. It's also remarkable given the size of rates. So mm. if you look at the percentage inversion, it is, it is massive and historically unprecedented. But let's go back to the bank. So as that short rate's going up, uh, you are um, paying more to your depositors. And, uh, and given that you're locked into longer term investments, um, like these, these loans to companies and, uh, and, and the bonds that you bought, uh, like that's not moving. So, so your, your business model is being upended. So the business model works great if those long-term cash flows uh, that are coming in um, are exceeding the short-term cash needs. So this is uh, so when you invert the yield curve, you stress that model, and uh, and indeed, it could come to the point where uh, it causes big problems. And and this is kind of interesting to think about. That we talk about the inverted yield curve, but it really matters the way that it inverts. So uh, in the case that we've got today, both short-term rates went up and long-term rates went up, but short rates went up more than long rates. So why does that matter? It matters because these banks uh, have these longer term investments. And I guess Silicon Valley Bank is a great example of that, where they've got their commercial loans that had no problems. Uh, that, this, that failure had nothing to do with the quality of their loan book. It was very high quality, but it was the loan book to government. So the bonds that they were holding. And those bonds, uh, even if you're holding them to maturity, when the long rates go up, when interest rates go up, the value plummets. 
and and maybe you can't hold them to maturity. Maybe you have to sell. And that's where that bank uh, went insolvent. Now, I'm not saying that uh, SBB um, demise is purely a result of regulators. I'm making um, a simple sort of point here that when you invert the yield curve, that creates stress in the banking system. And Silicon Valley Bank is a prime example. So if we think about what they did, they said, well, um, rates are really low. And this is, let's say, three years ago. Rates are really low, um, but we can we can significantly increase our profit just by switching to higher duration bonds. So let's buy long duration bonds rather than short duration, and we can get more profit. Mm-hmm. And and this is this is the so called reach for yield. And in doing that, you also increase risk, and um, that risk was realized. Now, of course, you could hedge, right? So you could do like some swaps, and they had some swaps, but nothing really uh, that meaningful. Uh, and why? Um, well, I think they unloaded their swaps mainly because it was profitable to do, another source of profit. Um, this is also a regulatory failure. I know we're veering a little bit, but it's important to understand this um, because even though SVB wasn't subject to um, the so-called uh, stress test, uh, if they had, they would have passed. And that's because the stress test, test adverse scenario was so unrealistic. It, 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 the policymakers took us far away from the adverse scenario. So the reason I'm going on this thread is that the inverted yield curve in this severe inversion has created stress in the financial system, something that I thought originally could be mitigated. Mm-hmm. And this stress in the financial system uh, is causing uncertainty. And right now we're kind of in a lull. Um, and we saw a few banks um, get into trouble. Uh, we saw SVB go down. Uh, we saw uh, another bank have a hundred billion in withdrawals somehow uh, remain in business. And now we're in this lull period. And the Fed has said, oh, well, our banking system is sound and secure. Uh, okay, uh, fine. Uh, Want to show me some evidence that's the case? So uh, subprime is contained. <laughs> they, yeah. So you just say, "Oh, everything's okay." Then people just assume it's not the case. But people want to believe it's the case. So we're at this stage of uh, the business cycle where we see some problems in the banking system, and and just say. Oh well, that's just a one-off, mm. and uh, it, it, this is just idiosyncratic. Is well, that like Bear Stearns hedge fund failing in two thousand seven? Exactly, it's a one-off, no big deal. But what we need to look under the hood, and I, I wish that the Fed would do its analysis. I would go uh, and ask for like another stress test with a realistic uh, scenario. Um, at minimum, uh, or take a look 
so this is this is a pretty simple uh, exercise. Um, let's say the Fed is thinking of another 25 basis point hike. Then go do the math and figure out the duration exposure of all these banks and uh, and figure out how many additional banks go negative equity when you do this. So it's kind of uh, a simple piece of information. So you're doing this, you know that flattening the yield curve is going to stress the system. So why don't you measure how much stress you're going to induce? And, and these banks, frankly, are not that difficult uh, to value. Uh, and, and one of the key things is just looking at the bonds that these banks hold. And this, again, this is not a difficult exercise to do. And I think it's incumbent upon our policymakers to, to take action that's data-driven. And uh, we won't know exactly what they see, uh, what they're looking at um, for five years, because the minutes are embargoed for five years. We only get a summary, but I certainly hope they're doing this. And and um, and and this is related to what we're talking about. Um, that I fear, and I'm I'm, I'm not uh, an advisor to the Fed or anything like that, but I fear that the Fed now realizes that they made a mistake uh, keeping rates low for so long. And having zero rates effectively, where when we've got robust economic growth, low unemployment, record high stock prices, uh, what were they thinking? Well, Huge I think now deficits too in the fiscal side. Yeah. So now they're thinking, okay, well, we were late. They they tried to talk uh, this temporary thing for a long time was until it was a joke. Any any time. A Fed person said temporary, uh, the audience would start to laugh. And and now they've retired that. And and I fear that they're they don't want to be early and exiting. And what they're doing is uh thinking that they can solve the first mistake by a second mistake. And you know, like two negatives make a positive. It doesn't work that way. Uh, like two negatives make a bigger negative. Uh, and uh, it, it is it is unfortunate. Um, and I do believe that we should look look at the data. But again, looping back, uh, given that the Fed has not stood down, nor have they given an indication that they will stand down the next meeting, uh, this has created significant risk uh, in the financial system. And the other thing that I worry about that's um, that I've mentioned, so again, we don't know. We don't know the extent of the damage in the financial system right now. Uh, indeed, uh, we've got this incredibly dysfunctional situation uh, and it's so weird. Um, if you look at the average savings rates, they're very low. They're like 50 basis points. And then the average money market rate is like 450. So, yeah. so what's happening is people just sweeping their money out of these banks uh, and, and going, going elsewhere. Uh, and, and why is the savings rate so low? 
that's all they can afford. They've right. got the market power to actually do it. So, uh, so, and hopefully some people stick around at 50 basis points, even though they could get 4% more uh, in a very simple way. So, so this is, when I see that, that to me just screams risk. Yeah. Uh, but it's not just the banking system. I worry also about um, commercial real estate. And, and let me give you my uh, logic on this. Um, so remember I said that if I was doing my job at, at Falkenbridge as a student, I'd be looking at other indicators, uh, in addition to the slope of the yield curve. So some of those indicators would be kind of credit indicators. So think of like high yield minus treasury, stuff like that. And if you look at that today, it's not really a problem. But there's other things that could be looked at. And if you look at, let's say, CMBS, like mortgage-backed securities that are commercial, um, the spread over treasuries has been climbing. Uh, it's been climbing for a while. And I think that that is kind of a fragile market. And there's another reason for the fragility, and that is that the demand for commercial space has suffered um, what I consider a structural change given the pandemic. So it's a lot more likely that some of your workforce can work from home. And I know this firsthand at Duke because we had all these uh, these buildings planned for all of the offices that uh, we needed, people in trailers and, and stuff like that. Uh, well, all of a sudden, 25% are working from home and we don't need to construct a new building or two. So, so this is just manifesting itself um, in big cities. So I, I do worry that that could be the next source of stress. As soon as that happens, then we revisit um, the financial system, which is unresolved right now. Uh, you know, like I know this is like terrible to say because it sounds like a conspiracy situation, but uh, maybe well, we the, welcome the Fed, conspiracies on the show. <laughs> maybe the Fed's got the data. I don't know. Maybe they've done the exercise that I'm suggesting, and maybe they know the number of banks that have negative equity right now. Maybe they had that information. They're sitting on it. Um, I so you can totally break that that uh, conspiracy theory. Um, uh, by resolving uncertainty and just releasing the data. So it shouldn't be that people have to go do this on their own, go through the 10Ks uh, and you know, bank by bank, uh, try to do uh, the math. Uh, this, is, you know, this is why we pay the regulators. They've got a job to do. So the job is actually, um, in one way, it's constrained because they're enforcing the regulations that exist. And those regulations come from Congress because that's a regulatory framework. Um, so the other important function is to monitor. And, uh, and to monitor, you need to have data on the the health of, of all of these banks. We have a large number of banks. Uh, I know the the top five get top four get most attention, but uh, that second tier could be very important 
And we've already seen significant weakness in that second tier. So this is kind of a long way uh, of getting back to the yield curve. So this is the second channel of causality. So the first channel of causality that I went through is the so-called self-fulfilling prophecy. When it inverts, people cut back and it slows growth. Uh, the second channel of causality goes through the financial sector that, uh, and, and, and I've described um, kind of one of the methods here that the bank's business model is stressed because they have to pay out more, they're receiving less. When those long rates go up, just the value of those loans go down. And that's what happened at uh, SCB. And you need to take a write down uh, for your available for sale portfolio, at least. Your ultimate maturity portfolio uh, should take a similar write down, but it doesn't according to uh, the accounting rules. Can't so, you flip uh, those bonds to the Fed though? It using one of their windows and getting a hundred cents on the dollar. And that's yeah, so right. Um, but think about that. So what's the cost of doing that? So yeah, the feds, a uh, new, uh, you know, system, I got a bond that's worth $60. I can, um, send it for collateral and the fed says, well, that's a hundred dollar bond. At par, right? yeah. yeah. It's at par. Right. Uh, so we'll lend you some money, but we're going to lend at the Fed funds rate, right? Which is super expensive, right? So, so that is expensive to do, um, and and indeed, I'm watching that very carefully uh, because that that's telling you something. Uh, that, that that is like a an indicator, uh, and I think most banks have figured this out and don't want to use this facility because it's just so obvious that you must be desperate. Uh, if you're going to do this. So so again, we just need the data. We don't have the data. And uh, and it's just unclear how serious the situation is. And the Fed, by increasing rates, is playing with fire. Let me also say that um, if we do go into recession, uh, this is, I've called this uh, the Fed strategy an own goal. <laughs> and uh, then I was told, well, Americans don't really know what that means. Uh, everybody <laughs> in Europe knows what that means. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and, and let me explain what I mean by that. So the reason to increase rates overwhelmingly is inflation. But if you look at the last nine months, inflation's running at 3.2%. And that's not too but it's close. And then more importantly, what is driving that inflation? And that inflation is being driven by shelter or housing. So 70% of that inflation is coming from housing. And the Fed made this mistake before that uh, inflation uh, was going up and uh, and they were saying, oh, well, this is temporary, it's no big deal. I'm looking at the data. Housing and rentals are up double digit, but that was not being reflected in the CPI. So housing enters with a lag. And, uh, and the intuition for, for listeners is real simple, uh, that think about uh, you're, you're in a lease and uh, you're locked in 
and then all of a sudden rental inflation goes up by 15%. Well, you're locked in. And, and you are, if your lease is a month old and is an annual lease, then inflation zero for you for the next 11 months. But then when it comes off, the you're going to suffer the 15%. And it goes, goes into the data. So uh, shelter is this lagging indicator. And, uh, and again, it was the, the Fed's mistake not to see that the inflation was going to be way more permanent because of the housing inflation. So today, so we've got inflation of 3.2% over the last nine months, and that's annualized, annualized 3.2%. Um, but look at the housing market. So housing prices are going down. Rentals are going down. So it's the same story that it will take up to a year for that to work its way into uh, the CPI. So, so really, in, in my opinion, uh, and also just by the way, uh, shelter is 33% of the CPI and 40% of the Fed's favorite indicator of the personal consumption expenditure uh, deflator. So to me, um, there's not a good reason uh, to keep on hiking. All we do is to uh, increase the probability of a problem with the financial system and increase the probability of a recession. And not just a technical recession, but a potential hard landing recession. Does the steepness say anything to you that this is, a, if you run the, the data back on the on the SEC's web, or whatever it is, the, the, uh, the Fed's website, right. Right. it runs it back to sort of 80 and there's no, there's nothing like 1.68, which was the close yesterday, which was the record in there. There's a, there's a, another data series that goes back and it captures 77 and 80, which are both. Yeah, it, it was That's steeper the, and very noisy through there. Yeah. So uh, my advice: treasure bills go back to 1940s. Um, so uh, just you use the series that's called, uh, and this is advice for everybody. Um, there's a long series of the three month bill quoted at, on a discount basis. And you just need to do a conversion. Uh, so discount basis is this weird quirk of like bonds. Uh, so if you've got, let's say, a one-year treasury bill, and let's say the price is $90. So in a year, you get a, like 100. They'll quote that as a 10% discount yield. But we can easily convert that to a true yield. So if you buy it 90, you hold it uh, until 100, uh, you're going to be making 11.1%. So there you can get, like at the Fed series only from the 80s because of this, they should use uh, the discount uh, yield and convert it. Uh, but but again, you look at that series, pretty clean from 1968, no false signal. Um, 1998 was close. And that was during the LTCM um, you know, disaster. And yeah, it was true. There was a lot of uncertainty at that time. And the yield curve flattened correctly. So that's exactly what it should have done. But again, today it's different because it's got all the like the causal uh, influences. Is and it hold gonna... up international? Um, has it been? Re can can you replicate with other bond markets outside of the U.S.? Yeah, that's interesting because when I did the dissertation, I did some other countries. Yeah, and published papers in other countries uh, on this, <laughs> and there seemed to be like some predictive ability everywhere but Japan. 
<laughs> Japan's always yeah, at the always time. The I, yeah, but this is early in my career. I'm I'm thinking, oh well, that that's so weird. But now looking back, yeah, I understand. Uh, everything is weird uh, in Japan. Uh, indeed, uh, I, the the most interesting paper I did, in my opinion, uh, was other than dissertation, was I looked at Canada and the U.S. So I'm Canadian, so I figured I've got to do a yeah. paper in Canada, home country, and 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 in Canada is got such a high beta uh, with the U.S. So their business cycle very closely tied, and interest rates to some degree. So I fully expected that the U.S. Uh, yield curve would predict Canadian GDP, but that wouldn't have been interesting. So what I did was I looked at the difference between Canadian economic growth and U.S. growth, and then looked at the difference between the Canadian yield curve and the U.S. yield curve, and found that that had predictive ability. Hmm. So the incremental uh, growth of Canada, either above or below the U.S., that was strongly predicted by the difference in the yield curve slopes. So, so I thought that that was interesting evidence. And those markets, fairly liquid markets, uh, when you go uh, offshore to other markets, you've got you know, illiquidity issues. In, in Japan, it's extreme now, given BOJ buys everything. Yeah. Do you th- is there an argument maybe that um, you might lose some predictive ability if there is a more Japanification of... Yeah, other markets. I always think about that. Uh, So uh, there's always noise. Like this simple model I've got, uh, it doesn't even have the Fed in it. (laughs) So the Fed is like creating noise. Um, So yeah, you always worry about this. I thought about this even in my dissertation um, with the Fed doing Operation Twist. In the 1960s, the first version of it, and I'm like, oh well, that's going to that's going to distort the predictive ability of the yield curve, and and you could think that, like I believe that is the case. You will distort, and uh, in this case, in today's case, uh, it isn't a distortion because it's causal. So, given this extreme inversion, they are. They are stressing the financial system, which means deposits are fleeing, going to money market funds. Uh, The the banks are cutting back on their loan books as a result of the deposits fleeing. So you tighten credit. All of these are ingredients of a self-inflicted wound to push us into an unnecessary recession. It is, it is a blunder uh, and the magnitude is, is very large. And, and I think that sometimes we just don't appreciate uh, what sort of stress a recession imposes on not just our economy, but our people. Yet yeah, unemployment is, is awful. It, it, uh, it causes stress within families and, and all these other problems that are hard to count. And in this particular situation, it's unnecessary. Pam, in your, uh, some of the presentations that I've seen you give, you talk about the timing from the inversion. So you say it takes nine, 
October 25, we invert plus 90 days to send a signal, gets you through to January 25. And you say six months after, six months from the inversion is the earliest that a recession has manifest, which would be today, April 25. The wow. average is about 12 months through to October 25. And then as long as 15 months, which would be January 25, 2024. Do you have any view um, if we do see a recession do you, do you, do you need the uh, the uninversion to happen before the recession no. is declared? No, no. Though that has happened, um, it, it totally depends on duration. So the yield curve is very good at giving you forewarning of a recession. So we've already said eight out of eight, and the lead time varies. So it varies in a range, mainly uh, let's say six to eighteen months of lead time. Uh, and then there's another quality of this indicator that uh, is, I think, uh, remarkable. And that is that the length of the inversion closely matches the length of the recession. Mm. So if you do this in months, um, over the last four recessions, so those are the ones out of sample, the difference between the length of the inversion and the length of the recession is only one month. Mm. So it is very accurate uh, in doing that. So you've got uh, a good lead time, you've got uh, a matching of the length. What the indicator is not as good at is, is the direct, uh, not the duration, Depth. the magnitude of the recession. So, um, and, and it's just like too much to ask. I'll give you like two out of three <laughs> with yeah. one variable. That surely you can deliver a handful of other uh, other pieces of information to to give the magnitude. Well, I wondered if the steepness. It just maybe you don't have enough. You don't have enough ex uh, examples of. We've got eight altogether so far. It just yeah. I'm concerned that the steepness of this one indicates something nastier than ordinary coming down the pike. Can, yeah. can we just talk a little bit about the what? What is the the causal relationship? How do you view the the, the two yields in relation to each other and what that is telling us about what's coming. Yeah, it's a, one simple way to look at it is uh, any interest rate is three components to it. One is expected inflation. Uh, the other is expected real growth in the economy. And the third part is the expected risk. So if we're looking at treasuries, let's ignore the risk. So we've got inflation, and we've got the growth. And in a very simple way of thinking about it, suppose the inflation cancels out, and then you've just got the difference between longer-term growth and shorter-term growth. And that's the mechanics of kind of the growth uh, forecast. So uh, again, this is just a, a single indicator. And one way to think about it is that, um, that when the yield curve flattens out or inverts, uh, that just means slower growth. And, and the causal channels, that second channel is a real channel. So just think about what's happening here. Short rates are very high. People moving their money from banks to money market funds. Uh, banks having to get a lot tougher on loans, that slows growth right there. And that's the sort of thing that could push us uh, into recession. Because there's some research on uh, older, so, uh, I, don't, I don't want to say ancient, but it's like 1800, 
Uh, it seems that there was a lot of inversion through the 1800s because there's some speculate that hard money, uh, like a gold standard, indicated um, sort of an expectation of deflation, and that was sort of reflected yeah. in the, this constant inversion. Do you, yeah, have, you, so, have you seen that before? Yeah. So my dissertation actually um, uses data going back to 1900, but I collected data going back uh, 200 years. Uh, and when we go back that far, um, or actually even before 1953, the data are very challenging. Uh, and uh, I really only put it's challenging because illiquidity, challenging because of extreme sort of uh, yield curve control uh, before okay. the Fed uh, Treasury Accord. And then we go back further, but we don't have treasuries. We don't have it like a treasury bill. So people I use think something this was else. Like yeah, yeah. And so remember I said there's three components to the yield. Well, that risk component becomes much more important. So some of these countries are risky. Uh, it's not like today where the US is the reserve currency of, of the world and the safest instrument in the world is the 10-year bond. Right. So, uh, so I think that uh, it is much different. And most of my research. Uh, That's what is... Silicon Valley Bank thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, again, we're talking two different risks. Just, just one kidding. is sovereign risk and yeah. one is uh, duration risk. They need to manage the duration risk. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, what they were doing and many other banks just buying those bonds, well, it's relatively safe in terms of default but you need to manage the duration risk. And they failed to do that. And again, I don't know how many other banks have failed to do that. People were expecting I, I, negative rates. It was, it, it, it was, it was, I think it was a somewhat forgivable error because there, not that long ago, everybody thought the US was potentially going to negative rates. Most of the rest of the world, the developed world was in negative rates. I, I, yeah. I think it's a forgivable error. Not everybody yeah. did it though. JP Morgan Chase was aware. M&T Bank was aware. There are lots yeah, of other banks. Um, so- like I, I totally understand errors, um, but if you work in finance, you get paid uh, like these people get paid. Uh, there's this concept known as hedging, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and and there's this disagree. other kind I'm of just... concept that's kind of related to it called risk management. Uh, so, so I don't buy it. Um, this is again reach for yield. I do believe that the Fed made this situation far worse when they gave an adverse scenario of, okay, well, this is the worst that can happen. The uh, Fed funds rate is zero to 25 basis points and the 10-year bond is 0.5%, increasing to 1.5 over a year. And then the Fed takes like the real world so far out of their adverse scenario, so far away that you know banks going like this like uh you know we we thought that we were stress test and we could survive the worst scenario no so so that is unfair uh and and I'm willing to cut some slack there because of the gross failure of uh of kind of regulatory uh, oversight so it it's it's kind of like two things here so one is constructing a stress test to construct the mechanism. So that's kind of a regulatory issue. Then there's a supervisory uh, job that you do to make sure that you give um, you know, adequate diligence to 
uh, all of the banks, making sure they're safe. Uh, you know, again, uh, the Fed knew about problems at Silicon Valley Bank well before it went under. Uh, they just didn't do anything about it. And we're well over time here, but uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about the book over your shoulder that you've got a new book, Defy. Do you want to yes. plug the book? Yeah, it says Defy in the Future of Finance. Um, and this has been something I've been super interested in over the last eight years. So I've taught this material for eight years. I do research in this area, and I'm very excited about the possibility of uh, decentralizing some of the interesting aspects of our financial system and other parts of, uh, of what we do. And uh, it will be good for consumers. It's a technology of inclusion and of financial democracy. It also challenges all of the uh, monopolies and duopolies that we have today. And this is not just a comment about our financial sector. This goes well beyond because the concept of Web3 is what we've got today with Web2 plus the decentralized finance. So that reasonable things happen so that if you get served an ad on social media, then you get paid for it as it should, rather than uh, the advertiser paying uh, the platform and you get nothing. So, so this really changes uh, the way that we interact in many different ways. It has, uh, I think, very interesting implications for finance in general, and that's my focus. Uh, but I do definitely talk about all of these other ideas that should be um, within Web3. And I'll leave with just one example of the simplicity of this. Uh, think of the major cloud uh, computing providers. And now think about your laptop or your desktop. How much CPU do you use every day? And for most people, it's not much. It's maybe an hour, maybe two hours. It's not that you're running simulations overnight. It's just not used. So why not rent that out? And it's just lying around. Hmm. So you can generate revenue. And it's just a simple, you know, Web3 application for uh, sort of cloud computing. So, so many different industries will be shocked by this, even though all the media attention is on the trials and travails of Sam Bankman-Fried, which, by the way, has nothing to do with decentralized finance. That's centralized finance. Uh, or the price of Bitcoin or Dogecoin. No, there's something else happening under the radar that's not just speculation on cryptos that will affect uh, all of the top names, all of the top companies. That sounds fascinating. Campbell there's, Harvey. There's an irony too that, uh, you know, YouTube is going to serve up 25 ads on this while <laughs> paying Toby and I absolutely nothing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, not in the future. Not in the future. Okay, good. Campbell Harvey, thank you very much for your time.